0: a good song. (laughs) It's not a good song. I want to read the lyrics to you. Reach out and touch faith, your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares, your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers, someone who's there, feeling unknown and you're all alone, flesh and bone by the telephone. Lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer. Take second best, put me to the test. Things on your chest, you need to confess. And of course, he goes on to say that he's going to be her own personal Jesus. So it's blasphemous at best. But it makes a good point. It makes a good point. Today, Jesus goes back to his hometown, right? Mark chapter 6. He goes back to his own people, those that should know him best, love him most, support him be on his side, and what does he find? Rejection. We see in the gospel passage today, Jesus rejected utterly by his own town to the point that he marvels at their disbelief, scripture says. They're blind to his work. They're blind to his words. They're blind to his grace. And there's a warning in this passage to us. Look with me, and we'll look at the story together. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He, that is Jesus, went from there and came to his hometown, his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Jesus leaves the house of Jairus. That's where we were last week, right? He's just raised this little girl from the dead. And people are following. There's crowds following him. And he comes here back southward to his hometown, Nazareth. We know, of course, if we've read the rest of Scripture, he's here. And he is invited into the synagogue to speak as a rabbi. How that happens, we don't know. But he goes into the synagogue and he speaks as a rabbi. And look at the reaction to his speaking. There's a moment of clarity. And wisdom here, do you see it, the end of chapter two or verse two of chapter six, What is this wisdom given to him? They say, How are such mighty works done by his hands? They say, and then things turn, like on a dime, things turn quickly there 's a moment of clarity. And the blindness sets in. Sir Winston Churchill once famously quipped, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. Think about that for a minute. Men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. That's the case here, isn't it? They stumble across the truth. They're amazed at Jesus' words and works. And then the blindness sets in. What's their beef with Jesus? What's causing their spiritual blindness? Look at verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, there's a couple things going on here. First of all, the word carpenter is techne, or tecton, actually. Um, But we get the word technical from it. And so there's this idea that, isn't this man just a craftsman? This is just another laborer like us. How can he speak into my life? No doubt they'd seen him in his shop. Uh, The word's translated traditionally carpenter. But it can also mean iron iron worker and and even like contractor, okay? To put it in a modern context. So they've seen Jesus in their hometown doing this menial labor. But now he's speaking with great wisdom, calling them to something. A little bit of pride going on here. Is he not just one of us? Have you ever run into that? Who are you to tell me what to think? Well... Sometimes that statement rings true. Sometimes it's mere pride. There's something else going on here, too, that you don't catch in the English because you're not a first century Jew. But if you look at the original Greek, if you understand the culture of the time, there's something happening when they call Jesus the Son of Mary. The Son of Mary. They're calling him a bastard. They're calling him a bastard. In this culture, you were never called the son of your mother. You were called the son of your father. And note, later on in John's gospel, the Pharisees pick up on this and question Jesus, saying he's illegitimate. Saying that we don't know who your father is. We know who our father is, Abraham. Remember that in John later on? That's going on here among his own people, saying, so first of all, is this not the carpenter? Second of all, is this not that guy that we all know is illegitimate? Who is he to talk to us? Who is he to talk to us? Thus people who should be closest to Jesus because of their closeness are the furthest away from him he can't even speak to them as a rabbi or a teacher think about this for a minute he can't even speak to them as a rabbi or a teacher let alone a god the son of god and certainly not a savior They're blind spiritually to who Jesus is. They're blind to his works. They're blind to his words. And most sadly, they're blind to his love and to his grace. Verse 5, we read that Jesus can do no mighty works there. The word comes from the Greek dunamai, meaning no power, no miracle, right? So Jesus can't do miracles here. Because of their lack of faith. And look, this isn't the first time we've run into Jesus being rejected in Mark's gospel. One of the things uh, that, that constantly jumps out at me is, is if we pay attention, there's these little lines throughout Scripture that deal with Jesus' um, identity. And if you have your Bibles, you might link this back to chapter 1. Chapter 1. Jesus is criticized at the end of that chapter. I'm sorry, this is, I misspoke. It's chapter 3, the end of chapter 3. Verse 20. And he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. Notice Jesus went home. He went back to the same place. So they've rejected him twice at this point. And we're only in Mark chapter 6. There's an old English saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And in this case, it's caused not just triple blindness, but contempt for the very Son of God. I think we too can suffer from this blindness. How many of us read are reading this passage or heard the passage read from Ezekiel and you think of yourself as the person rejected? I'll be honest, that's where my mind first went. You know, oh, poor me. Oh, I'm such a victim. Oh, no one listens to me. But the challenge of this passage, in my mind, is not that. Rather, it's how am I the blind one? How am I the one rejecting God? How am I unwilling to hear from him because of this or that? We run into it all the time in modern American Christian culture. Oh, my God would never do that, you'll hear people say. Well, first of all, Jesus is not your God. He's God. Second of all, how do you know that? Are you familiar with Scripture well enough to say that? Second, are you making statements based on what you feel God should be and who you feel He should be or on who He's revealed Himself to be? You see, Jesus is dearly yours, friends. He is. But you're not His buddy. He's your sovereign. He's your sovereign. And he is dearly your brother. He says so in scripture, but he's also your king. He's not just someone you can turn to in a jam. He's not just someone you can pull when you're feeling down about yourself. He's not someone you can just call up on the telephone, that flesh and bone. To quote the song at the beginning of the sermon, He's not just someone to comfort you as you merrily go along on your way. He's God Almighty. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, works miracles today. Jesus Christ, the rabbi and teacher, speaks into your and my life today. Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, loves you and me and calls us out of sin and darkness to repentance today. Calls us away from things that would hurt us because he knows what they are today. Jesus calls us to proclaim him as a person. His person is revealed in the Gospels and in the rest of Holy Scripture that there's no good news outside of Jesus Christ, the person, the Son of God. That's the gospel There's no good news outside of Jesus Christ, the person. There are many counterfeit gospels floating around today. Some make us feel good. Some are just mere syncretism. They're just appropriating cultural norms and slapping the face of Jesus on them. Some of them come out of the political world where people use Jesus to try to uh, advance their agenda The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ loved us, came here, died for you, rose again, conquered death, has ascended into heaven. All those things we say in the creed, it's right there for us. And when we make Jesus too familiar, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have an intimate relationship with our God, but when we make him too familiar, we make theology about us and not him. Consider, I don't want to call God Father. I've got all sorts of baggage about my Father. So let's change that. Let's just call him God. No, Jesus refers to God as his Father. We're time and time again in Scripture, he reveals that relationship. That says something about him. It's not about you. Oh yes, it's true that we want to be Helpful to one another. We want to reveal Christ's healing power to one another. We want to invite the Holy Spirit into our hurts, into our sin, to cast it out, to help us, to remake us, to renew us. All that is true. But ultimately, it's about God speaking into us, not about us trying to redefine things or trying to make things in our own image. That's blasphemy. The Western church has had real problems with this lately. Our familiarity with Jesus makes us think that we can tame him, makes us think we can redefine him, someone who's been revealed to us. I want to draw your attention to the GAFCON report. Um, I want to incorporate it a little bit into the sermon today. It was panned out with your bulletins. There's a letter... Just hopefully you all got a copy of this, yes? Let's see. I've got mine up here, I guess. Looks like that. There's some things identified in this report. This was a report put out from uh, the GAFCON 2018 conference that went on uh, two weeks ago in Jerusalem, of which there were over 1,900 representatives from 50 countries, 316 bishops, 669 clergy, 965 laity. It was the biggest Anglican gathering since 1963. There were some notable people absent, namely the Archbishop of Canterbury. They met together to reaffirm Anglicanisms holding to the gospel, holding to the faith. Look with me there at the the first full paragraph, proclaiming God's gospel right in the middle there. God's gospel is the life-transforming message of salvation from sin and all of its consequences through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is both a declaration and a summons, announcing what can be what has been done for us in Christ and calling us to repentance, faith, and submission to his lordship. It involves the restoration and reaffirmation of God's original creative purposes. It's addressed to men, women, and children, and it is our only hope in light of the final judgment and the reality of hell. Pretty plain spoken, isn't it? But it's nothing that Jesus Christ doesn't say himself. Turn the page with me. Middle of the first full paragraph. The uniqueness of Christ lies at the heart of the gospel. There's salvation in no one else, and there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And yet the church comes under attack continually. The next paragraph, full paragraph, uh, lists external attacks. Do you see... External attacks include superstitious practices of sacrifices and libations that deny the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. What's he talking about there? What are they talking about? Well, that's not just the, that's not the United States. That's other places where this idea of witch doctors and all sorts of other spiritual religions, voodoo, things like that, are taken and adhered to. We deny that. Next, some religions deny the unique person and work of Christ on the cross. We've heard that here in our culture, right? That Jesus is your God, but he's not the God. You know, I'm sincere in my belief, so that's good. That's good enough. That's being rejected. Syncretism. In our culture, that is the syncretism. Appropriating our cultural norms and putting Jesus' face on it. Secularism seeks to exclude God from all public discourse and dismantle the Christian heritage of many nations. This has been most obvious in the redefinition of what it means to be human, especially in the areas of gender, sexuality, and marriage. The devaluing of the human person through the advocacy of abortion and euthanasia is also an assault upon human life uniquely created in the image of God. We see that in our culture, too. But of course, this is speaking to the whole world, the devaluing of human life, the redefining of God's creation itself. Militant forms of religion and secularism are hostile to the preaching of Christ and persecute his people. Any use of power, any use of power to influence people, to force people to believe but so that's not only the problem those are just the external problems let's look at it internally internally the prosperity gospel let's stop there what's the prosperity gospel the name it claim it folks the only victory in jesus people you know god's going to help you because you've given enough money to me or god's going to help you because You've done so many works in his sight, and and therefore he's obligated to give you what you want. That's the prosperity gospel. Theological revisionism, they both seek in different ways to recast God's gospel and to accommodate the surrounding culture. You know, the prosperity gospel is a huge problem in Africa because there's nowhere else to turn. So these charlatans go around and promise people all sorts of things and since there's nowhere else to turn they freely yield up their money revisionism we see that going on too now well the bible doesn't really say that i'm uncomfortable with that so i'm going to create this interpretation this hermeneutic that says well scripture doesn't really say that here's what it really says Last paragraph on that page. Tragically, there's been a failure of leadership in our churches to address these threats to the gospel of God. And this is important. The next line. We repent of our failure to take seriously the words of the Apostle Paul. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he, brought, which he bought with his own blood. I know that I, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even your own number men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them from Acts. Have we not seen that in the last few years? The last 20 years? The last 50 years? Have we not seen that over and over again in church history? And it's important here that we see bishops and archbishops repenting, stating their own failures. We've not guarded the church well enough. We haven't taught with conviction. We haven't had the courage to confront these things because they're uncomfortable to us. I'll let you read the rest of the letter yourself. It's powerful. It's powerful. And it doesn't talk about your own personal, private Jesus. It talks about Jesus who is. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the rabbi and teacher with authority to speak into our lives. Jesus Christ, our only hope, our only Lord and Savior. C.S. Lewis once famously wrote in the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, his book, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course, Aslan is the image of Jesus in the Chronicles of Narnia. And what C.S. Lewis is saying here is that God is not to be tamed. God is not safe. The God that doesn't confront you, that doesn't make you feel bad about yourself once in a while, that's not God. That's an imitation. That's something you've created. He doesn't make you feel bad and me to feel bad just to make us feel bad. He makes us, he convicts us so that we can repent and turn to him and grow, right? And the same goes for the whole church. The church that just affirms is not the real church. The church calls all people to repentance. The church calls all people to find their identity in Jesus. The church calls us not to have our personal Jesus, but to remove the blinders, to take off that blindness to his works, to his word, to his grace. He is the Son of God. His identity and mission are revealed thoroughly in Holy Scripture. Nothing else is needed. He's revealed himself to us. The creeds summarize who he is and what he's done for us. And he's not safe. He's not safe because he won't leave you alone if you're a Christian. But he's good. He wants what's best for you as he defines it, as your author, as your God. So don't get me wrong. Jesus Christ, he is yours. Jesus Christ, he is your personal savior and mine. But never forget, friends, that he's ours only because he has made us his. He's ours only because he's made us his. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are. We thank you that you've revealed revealed yourself to us, that you've shown us the Father, that you've sent the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to be discerning. Help us to be courageous. Help us to stand in our day as faithful followers and disciples of you. Help us walk forward from this place inspired, given the grace to see you more clearly, to love you more dearly, and to walk with you day by day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.